Generally speaking, defamation involves a, a statement that would be reasonably perceived as a statement of fact. It is false. It is published. And it is uh, uh, said at least negligently with regard to the falsehood. Of course, famously for public officials and public figures, there has to be shown the so-called actual malice, which is recklessness or knowledge. But from, for private figures, generally speaking, it has to be, uh, there has to be a showing at least of negligence. So, again, we've talked about one thing. Would people reasonably perceive statements put out by GPT-4 as factual assertions? I think yes, especially when they're in quotes. Again, quotation marks are signals, important signals to human beings that say, in most contexts, not in all contexts, most contexts, this is actually drawn from some source. So that's why I'm particularly worried about that. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 26th, 2023. Today, we're bringing you an episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the information ecosystem. If someone lies about you, you can usually sue them for defamation. But what if that someone is ChatGPT? Already in Australia, the mayor of a town outside Melbourne has threatened to sue OpenAI because ChatGPT falsely named him a guilty party in a bribery scandal. Could that happen in America? Does our libel law allow that? What does it even mean for a large language model to act with malice? Does the First Amendment put any limits on the ability to hold these models and the companies that make them accountable for false statements? And what's the best way to deal with this problem? Private lawsuits or government regulation? To discuss these questions, I spoke with First Amendment expert Eugene Volok, a professor of law at UCLA and the author of a draft paper entitled Large Libel Models. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 26. Eugene Volok on AI Libel. So let's dive uh, right into this. I think it's safe to say that you have been the you know, leading thinker on uh, what you very entertainingly call uh, large libel models, which is, of course, a pun on uh, large language model, which is what we are talking about. Before we get into the legal issues, I just want to ask as a practical matter, how big of an actual issue do you think this is going to be in the sense of users intentionally or unintentionally using LLMs like ChatGPT or whatever else comes out to create and spread defamation that actually harms people, right? Putting aside the legal questions, because, you know, after all, you know, don't we all understand that these are sort of toys and they're not really supposed to be truthful and there are disclaimers. So, I mean, why should we really worry that this is actually going to harm anyone in the real world? Sure. Uh, so first, I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, these uh, LLMs are uh, being worked into software that people routinely use, like Bing already has this built into it, Chat has GPT-4 built into it. Apparently, Google is planning on uh, working that into its, working its own uh, LLM, which I think is called BARD, uh, into its um, uh, search engine. I think what we're going to be seeing soon is that where before people would Google you, now they'll GPT you or they'll BARD you. And when might they do that? Well, they're deciding, you know, this person applied for a job. What can we figure out about him? Or uh, this person, we're thinking of maybe hiring him as a consultant or as an expert witness. What about that? Or, you know, this person asked me out on a date. Well, what can I figure out about him? Uh, so if indeed people start doing that as routinely as they use Google, uh, Bing, I mean, I guess they don't use Bing at this point routinely, but 
Microsoft is hoping that uh, uh, that the new Bing will draw a lot of people. Uh, then this is something that if there is uh, uh, libelous information, uh, false and reputation damaging information about people, it may affect them in their lives, even if the person who's using it doesn't then forward it. I mean, it's even worse if the person tweets out, oh, look at what I just learned about uh, Eugene Volokh, let's say. Uh, but even if they don't, if they just say, you know, I think I'd better move on to somebody else. Instead of hiring this lawyer, that is to say, just selecting this lawyer for my case, I'll go to somebody else who doesn't have all this negative stuff about now, will people believe them? Will people trust them? And I think the answer is hard to know for sure, but I'm inclined on this to trust something not from ChatGPT, but from OpenAI. OpenAI has this 100-page technical report on GPT-4. And here's one thing it says. It's talking about so-called hallucinations. That's the label for uh, for when uh, LLMs uh, just make up stuff, including, by the way, remember, they make up quotes. It's not just that, that the prose uh, is possibly unreliable. They say the Washington Post on this date said, and then give a quote, and the Washington Post never said that. Nobody ever said that. So these are called hallucinations. So here is what uh, uh, the technical report says. Hallucinations can become more dangerous as models become more truthful, as users build trust in the model when it provides truthful information in areas where they have some familiarity. I think that's the real danger. The danger isn't that these are completely unreliable. If they were completely unreliable, then yeah, nobody would rely on them. But what do we hear about them? Oh, GPT-4 performed at the 90th percentile uh, of human test takers on the bar exam. It's not just a Ouija board. I've heard people give it analogies, Ouija board or, uh, or a magic eight ball or a bunch of monkeys typing on a bunch of typewriters. I don't think a bunch of monkeys typing on a bunch of typewriters uh, would be at the 90th percentile of the bar exam. And they certainly wouldn't get $13 billion worth of investment from Microsoft. Everything we're hearing quite understandably about these uh, programs is precisely how they're actually often remarkably accurate or remarkably reliable. And when that happens, even when they warn you, well, sometimes we're unreliable, people might end up relying on them. So I think it's a very fair point. And I just want to draw out one thing that you mentioned, because I think it's something that's actually we, we sort of forget about. You know, often when we think about the harms of defamation, we think about the harms of uh, a lie, a sort of a factual inaccuracy, right? Such and such did X when they in fact did Y. And those are in fact harmful, potentially. But presumably people aren't just going to use ChatGPT for factual queries. They're going to use it for analytical queries, right? They're going to ask questions, not just like, who is Eugene Volokh, but is Eugene Volokh trustworthy? Would you recommend I hire Eugene Volokh based on all of that? And so that does strike me as an additional level of potential harms that you're going to get from large language models that you wouldn't necessarily get from uh, false responses in search engines, which, you know, as you know, of course, are still a, a big problem. Well, so let me let me point to three things here. One is that uh, if indeed uh, somebody says, "Should I trust Eugene Volokh?" and ChatGPT four says, "No, I don't think so," and then it says, "You know, his his views on libel law are are really kind of pedestrian and uh, uninformed." Uh, that's opinion. I mean, it's a funny thing to think about opinion being produced by by a computer program, but the law would treat that as opinion. It signals its quality as opinion to the reader, and it probably isn't actionable. 
On the other hand, if it says, no, you shouldn't trust Eugene Volokh, because here's what the Washington Post said about him, quote, and then gives this quote, which does not exist, then even though it's in the context of it's providing an opinion, if it's giving a factual assertion that turns out to be false, that is in fact what libel law goes after. Here's a second point I want to stress. I think some people think, well, or I've heard, certainly heard people say, well, you know, it does flag that it might be unreliable, so people won't rely on it. That's not the way defamation law generally has treated things. So let me give you a classic example. Let's say somebody says, I've heard a rumor that Eugene Volokh uh, has been found guilty of embezzling from the law school. You know, the statement, I've heard a rumor that, that is a signal that this may very well be unreliable. I mean, it's not framed as a disclaimer, but certainly people know that rumors are often inaccurate. Nonetheless, even if they had heard a rumor, just to be clear, I don't think there is such a rumor. Well, there is now, clearly. <laughs> Maybe so. If the assertion is false, that's being repeated as rumor, which it is, then in that case, that is potentially libelous. That's potentially defamatory. So the law has long recognized that even saying tentatively, here is a factual assertion. Maybe it's true, maybe it's false, I'm just passing it along. Even that uh, is potentially uh, defamatory. So likewise, if ChatGPT even says, well, I'm not sure about this, but here's a quote. That here is a quote is actionable, uh, potentially as libel, even if it turns out that that it does say, I'm I'm not sure about it. Uh, so so th so those are those are two things uh, I think to to keep in mind uh, uh, about these kinds of things. And the third one is uh, just that um, this is something that uh, the fact that it's a computer program I don't think changes the analysis. If I write a computer program, let's say for a, for uh, a newspaper that find, tries to find photographs of people who are being discussed in stories and some crime blotter stories. And I write that program and it turns out that 30% of the time it finds the wrong photograph. So then the story is published uh, and it has the wrong person, maybe, the, maybe even with a different name. It just finds the wrong photograph. So people look at it and say, oh, this is my neighbor. He's been, he's been arrested for, uh, uh, for sexual assault. It turns out that in fact, that photograph is of a completely different person. The company that is publishing that information, that's communicating that information, and perhaps the company that created the software, uh, and especially if the two are one and the same, would be potentially liable. They can't just say, oh, it's just a computer program. Well, you wrote the computer program. And even if it's a super fancy and sophisticated, maybe even unpredictable computer program, you are potentially responsible for harm caused by the program that you wrote. So since we're getting into the legal issues, let's let me just pause for a second and try to do some some or ask you to do some some scene setting. So can, can you just give a high level overview of the kind of basic concepts of defamation law? And in particular, what are the, the main things that a plaintiff has to establish to bring a defamation claim? Some folks in the audience sort of may not know. And, and then map that to the LLM context. And what I'm particularly interested in is, you know, what part of the, of that standard tort of defamation is the trickiest to, to uh, apply in the LLM context? Right. So generally speaking, uh, defamation is, and I oversimplify here. Uh, if I didn't oversimplify, this would take a very long time because defamation law is very complicated. But generally speaking, defamation involves 
a, a statement that would be reasonably perceived as a statement of fact. It is false. It is published. And it is uh, uh, said at least negligently with regard to the falsehood. Of course, famously for public officials and public figures, there has to be showing of so-called actual malice, which is recklessness or knowledge. But from, for private figures, generally speaking, it has to be uh, there has to be a showing at least of negligence. Again, there are complications, but basically that's that. So, again, we've talked about one thing. Would people reasonably perceive statements put out by GPT-4 as factual assertions? I think yes, especially when they're in quotes. Again, a quotation marks are signals, important signals to human beings that say, in most contexts, not in all contexts, most contexts, this is actually drawn from some source. So that's why I'm particularly worried about that. Second thing is false, and indeed, it does appear that it's just making up quotes. By the way, it would be very different if what it did was it found a quote somewhere in some unreliable source and then passed it along. There it might actually be immune, or that is to say OpenAI might be immune, under the 47 U.S.C. Section 230 statute, which basically limits liability or prevents people from being held liable when they're passing along online material from another online source. But here again, we're talking about things with where ChatGPT, OpenAI software, just made it up. It's not passing along anybody else's. It's just creating it. The third question is publication. And one thing to keep in mind is while you hear a lot about publication and libel law, that's not what you and I usually think of as publication. Libel law does not require, and slander law doesn't require, defamation law doesn't require putting it out onto the internet, doesn't require distributing it to thousands of people. It is enough if it is communicated to one person other than the person being defamed. So classic examples is a poison pen letter that says, oh, your, your fiance has been cheating on you. That could, be, that could be defamation. Another classic example is a bad job reference. Oh, we had to fire this person because he was stealing from the company, and that's false. That, that uh, uh, satisfies the publication requirement because it's communicated just to one person. Likewise, whispering in someone's ear, some rumor, that's not libel, it's slander because it's oral, but the publication requirement is satisfied. So that's why I think these requirements are likely present. Now, you might say, what about negligence? What does it mean to talk about negligence uh, here? Like, is the software negligent? No, negligence is the quality of a, uh, of a person. And it could be also an organization based on the negligence of its people. So let's say, for example, you get hit by a self-driving car. Let's imagine some Tesla that is completely self-driving. You're not going to sue the car for the car being negligent. You're not even going to sue Tesla Corporation for the car being negligent. But you might sue the Tesla Corporation for its having negligently designed the self-driving car, either the hardware or the software. Uh, likewise, in this example that I gave of, imagine uh, some uh, newspaper that has a, a photo retrieval service that, that, that comes up with a photo for uh, a particular person who's the subject of the story, um, and it turns out that there is a bug that they were aware of that just didn't fix. Or they're using software that has a 40% error rate, whereas their competitors have software with a 5% error rate. Well, though all, all that could be evidence of negligence. One possibility is it might be, you say, look, it's negligent for you to create software that outputs to people things in quote, between quotation marks that you have no way of checking. If you can't be sure that what you put out between quotation marks is an accurate quote, 
I oversimplify here, but generally speaking, uh, make sure you don't use quotation marks or maybe take everything that's between quotation marks and Google it or look it up and make sure that you have access to your training data and look it up in your training data. Uh, so those are the kinds of arguments that are similar to, although not identical, with the kinds of arguments that people might make in uh, product liability design defect cases that might argue that the company is negligent in its design. So, yeah, let me let me ask you, let me follow up on that, because, you know, I'm, I'm having a flashback to, you know, my first semester of law school in torts. And at some point in torts, you're studying negligence and you learn the famous BPL formulation of learned hand, the kind of idea that at least in some contexts, the way that courts think about whether some action was negligent was whether the uh, the benefits of the action were uh, were sort of greater than the costs. And in, in particular, you know, right. in kind of a law and econ sense, you know, whether or not uh, it would be sort of socially optimal for the negligent actor to have spent the money and resources necessary to prevent the, the negligence right. or to, to prevent the harm. And, and so right. th th this raises then this question of, well, would you expect in uh, in one of these lawsuits for one of these companies to say, look, we are on the cusp of a epical transformation um, that will potentially lead us all to the singularity? I mean, it, you just, you know, it, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And therefore, um, any action on our part to, quote unquote, dumb down these models or make them more, let's say, more small C conservative which is what you would need to get rid of the false quotes and the hallucinations uh, that we, ac we accept that that will cause costs, uh, cause harms and in, in, in defamatory harms. But we don't think it's negligence because, look, those harms are peanuts compared to the benefits of rushing headlong into our into the, our brave new world of, uh, mm -hmm. of LLMs. Right. You know, that is a plausible argument. Let me just give you an analogy tra from traditional libel law how this might come out. Imagine that there's a libel lawsuit against a newspaper by a private figure, but it was implicated in some breaking news story. And they said, well, the, the, the newspaper wrongly accused me of something uh, and it was negligent. So the newspaper could say, look, it was really important for us to get the story very quickly. It was about some, some like right before an election, it was about some very serious allegations. We're sorry we got, we got it wrong, but we acted reasonably. And you can't expect us to just, whenever there's any possibility of error, just, uh, just uh, not publish anything. That would be too bad. That would be, that would be a chilling effect. That could be a very good defense on their part. And likewise, if the plaintiff says, well, you acted unreasonably in failing to wait two days to hear back from me. Well, no, maybe it was reasonable to publish quickly. Or you acted unreasonably in failing to hire a private detective that would go out there and check all these records to figure things out. Well, no, it was reasonable for us not to do that. On the other hand, let's say that the newspaper just failed to call up this person or failed to email this person, and this person's publicly known email address. And he says, if you had just emailed me an hour before publishing, I would have responded right away and I would have shown to you that this accusation is just plain false. Well, then it might have been negligent, it might have been careless. So it is a fact, by uh, it's a, sort of a case-by-case fact-based inquiry, but it's not, generally speaking, it's something that, you know, you've got to persuade a jury of, or the plaintiff has to persuade a jury and the defendants would have to persuade the jury the contrary, uh, or at least persuade a judge up front. So for example, let's say the plaintiff says, well, you were careless because you failed to have human beings check every item that they were outputting and do some research. I said, well, 
That would be unreasonable. That, that, that would not be a reasonable design alternative in the words of product liability design defect law, which is also negligence-based. Um, because it would be just be make this way too expensive and just, just ineffective. Uh, on the other hand, let's say they say, well, what was unreasonable is that you wrote software that, again, puts quotation marks around things that you have no business putting in quotation marks. Uh, all you had to do is just make sure that you don't use quotation marks and you don't attribute things to uh, supposedly reputable sources unless you really have the goods on that. So if you want to go out there and summarize some case or uh, talk about or explain quantum physics or whatever, by all means, be my guest. But what you should, what's unreasonable for you to do is to allow your software to output. The Washington Post wrote about Volokh that, quote, dot, 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 close quote. When you know, based on your understanding of your software, that there's no reason to believe that that material between the quotes actually exists anywhere. So go out there, have your, have your large language model, have your software, but just don't uh, what's careless about you is that you are allowing the output of quotations without any means on your part of checking them. You know, that might be a plausible theory. A lot of these companies, well, certainly uh, OpenAI, and I believe I've heard the same from Google about BARD, actually tout how uh, they're actually working really hard to prevent harmful outputs, to prevent output that, for example, is sexually explicit or output that is racist or something like that. And even output, you know, it's not like racist output is illegal. It's not even civilly actionable, but they try hard because they don't want to be spreading racist, uh, 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 racist messages. They say, you know, we are going to try hard to, uh, to avoid that. Well, all right, if you are able to spend all this effort to avoid certain kinds of harmful things, are you sure that you can't spend some extra effort to avoid things that are that are harmful in this way, in this way that the law ha has long recognized as harmful? If you have the $13 billion, you know, might it be that some of that could be invested uh, towards doing something that doesn't doesn't just damage your, your software to the point of unusability, uh, but at least diminishes the risk uh, that it outputs live? So... I want to sort of underscore, bring out something in, in what you just said, because I wouldn't want to sort of misunderstand your argument or the argument of your paper or your series of blog posts as saying that whenever ChatGPT says something factually incorrect about someone, it has defamed them. It's rather that defamation law does in principle apply. And so we should expect over the next X number of years for a kind of common law of large language model defamation to arise, just as it has arisen with every kind of new technology or that caused harm, and that there will be courts that have to answer specifically these questions. And, you know, maybe the, the most difficult of these questions will be, well, what is reasonable? And it strikes me that although this is not in principle a different question than in, you know, when your lawnmower injures you and you sue the lawnmower company um, or the car company or, or whatever. Um, there are a couple of factors about large language models that's going to make this very, very difficult uh, for courts to do. I'm curious what you'd expect given that. One that occurs to me is um, the what's sometimes called the sort of double exponential growth uh, of the sophistication of these models. And, you know, we're seeing a, a technological development that is arguably faster than 
I mean, I don't want to say any in history, but certainly it's it's up there and how quickly it's growing. When you plot the the development of these models on a log scale, you still get an exponential curve, which is why it's called double exponential. And so there's a, you know, a real difficulty in knowing what the state of the art even kind of is and what is and is not reasonable for these designers to do. And then the second tricky issue is that large language models seem sort of uniquely inscrutable among technologies. Like when you build a car, no matter how complicated the car is, it is fundamentally one million components and you can figure out exactly what every single component does. You can, in principle, understand exactly what's going on. But the architecture of large language models is such that you can peer into the black box and there's, there's nothing to look at. They're, they're inscrutable. Um, which is one of the things that's most controversial about them. So it's not even clear what it is, what lever you're even supposed to pull to avoid a harm and what the effect of that lever would be on something else. And so we just, I'm trying to think about the, what the litigation, you know, when, when, you know, Volokh sues OpenAI or, you know, Rosenstein sues Bard uh, for this. What is a judge going to do to figure this out? It seems like it's going to be just an, a, a, a miserable process, even by the standards of civil litigation. Well, right. So I think people have talked a lot about the difficulties with our civil justice system dealing with technical questions. But of course, it's not new to AI, right? If there's a claim that some that some drug was negligently designed uh, and has a, some sort of defect, design defect in it, like it wasn't properly tested or they didn't take into account the uh, uh, the certain risks of certain side effects, they didn't spot the side effects, you know, that requires, resolving that requires a lot of medical training, which of course judges and jurors don't have. And then you have experts who testify and who knows who's telling the truth. Uh, so these are very serious concerns. Likewise, with self-driving cars, was there a negligent uh, design or was this just some inevitable error that happens even with a reasonable design? Rightly or wrongly, we have a legal system that generally allows or in fact requires judges and juries to try to resolve those questions with the help, however imperfect, of experts. And the alternative being either leave it in, essentially say, well, if you're doing technological stuff, you're off the hook. Doesn't matter what harm it causes. We just can't figure out if you're acting reasonably. So we'll just, we'll just uh, leave you unpunished or leave the people you've injured more of the point uncompensated. Or the alternative might be to have, well, let's just make sure we have technical regulators or technically knowledgeable regulators. So just have a federal AI agency that regulates all this in real time. It's possible, but of course that has its own problems. And again, that's not the way we've generally chosen to do most such things, at least so far, there is no such agency. Um, so then that deals with this question of like, what are we really expecting these companies to do, given that indeed these large language models are, as best I can tell, often you know, they, they do stuff and you look at the output and it's it's really quite remarkably grammatical. It's often quite, quite reliable, at least to a substantial degree. But how exactly it's doing that, you don't really know for sure. It's not like you hand coded it. It's like you, you trained it on all of this data. So I think th that's a very serious concern. I think there are a couple of answers. One is this too is not a new model. The law has long had to deal with situations where people are held responsible for behavior that's not entirely within their control. So one classic example, and I owe these analogies to Jane Bambauer, uh, is with animals, right? Let's say you're a rancher and you've got, you've got cattle and the cattle wanders off and tramples somebody else's 
somebody else's land. Uh, well, you could say, well, you know, how was I to know that the, that the cattle would do that? You know, they've got minds of their own. Uh, or you have a dog and the dog bites someone. Say, so, well, you know, I don't know. Well, I think there are a couple of answers. One is you might be kind of responsible for training your dog well. I mean, maybe not training it perfectly. We know that uh, uh, that training of dogs is not is not an exact science, but we know that there's things you could do. You also could put up fences, right? So you, you may be responsible to put up a fence that keep your, your cattle from wandering. And by the way, the legal rules may be different in different jurisdictions, but these are the kinds of things that you could say. You are negligent in not putting up a fence, or you are negligent in not chaining up your dog, or you are negligent in letting your dog run loose. Uh, so, so the answer is, well, you might be responsible for something which you cannot control the way you can control a mechanical entity. But beyond that, one thing I think to keep in mind is there are some possible safety features that could be built in that don't require re-engineering this mysterious large language model. So some of them might be what you might think of as post-processing or filtering. So you might, for example, say, look, whatever the large language model outputs, we're going to go through, we're going to find every quote there, and then we're going to Google it. And if Google search for that quote does not come up with anything, then we'll just exclude that quote. Because, you know, it's possible it's a quote from some real source, but it seems not that likely. Uh, and at least we can't vouch for it. So just exclude that. You don't need to change the large language model not to generate that, but you can just, just remove that. Or here's another example. And this may actually involve, may actually lead to liability even under a knowledge or reckless, knowing or reckless falsehood standard, the misnamed ma actual malice standard. Let's say that somebody, there's actually a, a real situation where apparently a mayor of a small town in Australia informed OpenAI that ChatGPT is producing false allegations that, that, that he was found guilty of bribery or something like that. So one thing that OpenAI might do is it might say, look, whenever the something is generated and it has a name of a real person, and you could probably write software that tries to figure that out pretty reliably, then look it up in a list of kind of known errors and see, is this person being accused by this output of bribery? And if we're on notice that that accusation is false because it's been credited to some news story that doesn't exist, uh, then, uh, then just exclude that. Again, you don't have to mess around with this mysterious large language model algorithm. You could just have post-processing software that goes through that output and, and, uh, uh, and identifies the potentially most damaging things or at least the easiest damaging things to identify. So far, we focused on the product's liability framing of this. But one of the points you make in in your in your work on this is that um, we might also want to think about what you call a notice and blocking regime, right. which you analogize to the notice and takedown uh, regime that operates in, in copyright. So just explain what you mean by that and, and sort of how you think sure. that, would, that would help. So remember, libel law, if there's a libel lawsuit brought by a private figure, again, I oversimplify here, but basically libel lawsuit is brought by a private figure, that private figure has to show not just false factual assertions, but also negligence. I'm using here products liability as an analogy. It's not completely on point, but I think it's analogous enough because one way of thinking about design defect liability for products is 
that it targets negligent design of products. So if you're making a negligence lawsuit uh, against OpenAI saying that it negligently defamed you, then you'd need to make those kinds of arguments. But what if you're saying that OpenAI actually knew that there was a statement that was being out, but that was false, or at least was reckless about, which means it knew it was likely false and recklessly disregarded that possibility. And it just allowed its software to keep outputting it. So that's a claim that even a public figure or public official like that mayor uh, would be able to bring. And again, the theory would be, look, maybe you were negligent at the outset when this, this false statement about me was originally published. But when I let you know, I gave you my name, I gave you, let's say, uh, a particular allegation it's making against me that I have evidence that it's false, like, for example, that it's making the allegation using a quote that's made up. Once you're on notice, then you have to stop redistributing that. And if that means writing some code that, again, kind of does post-processing and whenever there is uh, an, uh, uh, something said about a particular person, looks it up in this table of known falsehoods and then removes it, that's what you need to be doing. Otherwise, you are acting with reckless disregard of falsehood. Here's one way of thinking about it. Imagine you're running a newspaper and you write a, uh, a false story about me. But, you know, let's say I'm a public figure. I don't think I am, but let's say I am. I'm a public figure. You are off the hook unless you knew it was false and you didn't. You were just careless or maybe we just you made a reasonable mistake. But then I send you information that proves to you that that allegation about me is false. And yet your reporters keep writing about this. Like the next time this issue comes up, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, Volokh is guilty of this and that, even though you have been informed that that statement is false. At that point, once you make that assertion again, well, then in that case, you are acting with knowing or reckless, oh, no, knowledge or recklessness as to falsehood. Again, I oversimplify, but basically, I think that's so. And likewise, if OpenAI just ignores these kinds of reports that that, it, that ChatGPT is producing particular false statements about particular people, if it just ignores them and allows ChatGPT to keep doing that, then that might be showing of knowledge uh, or recklessness. So hence, one possible remedy is this notice and blocking, that once they're on notice of a particular allegation that ChatGPT is outputting, or of course, the same thing is true with Google and Bard and such, then in that case, uh, uh, they would need to, to at least take reasonable steps to keep it from uh, coming out again. So let's talk about some more of the kind of potential defenses that an LLM company could could raise. Um, you know, you've already mentioned why you're skeptical that Section 230, uh, which listeners of this podcast have heard way too much about uh, over the last few years, you're skeptical that that would apply here because even though there is obviously third-party content that goes into the training, at the end of the day, what's really happening is the LLM is creating its own content. And so it's not sort of third-party content. Fair, fair enough. But I'm also curious what whether you think the First Amendment might have a limiting role. Because of course, the First Amendment has very famously limited the scope of uh, defamation uh, and other kinds of liability, right? New York Times versus Sullivan, the, the famous case, or Smith versus California, uh, uh, which distinguished between liability for publishers and, and distributors and bookstores and that sort of thing. It seems like one could make an argument, and maybe here I'm just sort of restating my earlier point about what negligence in this context means, given the incredible generative potential of these models. I mean, one might say, look, these models are going to allow people to communicate, to express their thoughts 
to, to hear new thoughts, even if those new thoughts come from a machine. And that has such incredible First Amendment value that as a First Amendment matter, we should have a different, weaker defamation liability regime for LLMs because again we we don't what we don't want to do is incentivize so much post processing or whatever it is that it would take that you effectively dumb down um even if in a sense you're making more accurate um these large language models well so i appreciate that argument one can certainly make this argument a version of this argument had been made about another really important technology which is newspapers Right, New York Times v. Sullivan, that we, the, the holding of New York Times v. Sullivan that we know, is actually just a view of six justices in the majority. Three justices, uh, uh, Black, Douglas, and uh, Goldberg, would have gone further, at least as to speech on matters of public concern. They would have completely immunized newspapers altogether. And specifically newspapers. Or other speakers. At least anybody who is using mass communication. Although well, they might have also applied it to... to oral communication as well. But their view was that there's such an unacceptable chilling effect, even from the actual malice standard, that is to say, from the standard that requires a showing of knowledge and recklessness, even that would still leave too much of a chilling effect. So the only way to avoid the chilling effect is just to completely abolish libel law, at least as to speech on matters of public concern. Likewise, a decade later in Gertz v. Robert Welch, Justice Brennan argued that at the very least, this actual malice, knowledge and or recklessness standard should apply to all speech about anybody and not just about public figures. He would have extended it to private figures. But the court didn't agree. The court said, look, it's important to avoid chilling effects. And, it, and we're perfectly willing to impose substantial limitations on libel law to diminish the chilling effect of the law on vigorous reporting. But it's also important to provide some protection for individual reputation. So the way we reconcile the two is we say for public figures, they have to show knowing or reckless falsehood. And for private figures, they have to show at least negligence against that. I oversimplify, but basically that. So I'm just trying to apply that same pattern to LLMs. Now, you could say, no, LLMs are so valuable, even more valuable than newspaper reporting, that we need to provide them even more protection and therefore conversely provide people who are defamed by them even less protection. You could say that. I'm just not sure why we should provide this extraordinary protection to LLMs when we don't provide it to newspapers. We don't provide it to self-driving cars. We generally don't provide it to, to a lot of things. So I, I'm, I'm inclined to doubt that courts would or should just say, well, LLMs are so wonderful, so nifty and novel and important that we're going to carve out special protection. Now, by the way, there is an area of special protection under libel law, which provides actually categorical protection. And that's Section 230, back to Section 230, that, that it does indeed say that social media companies and other online providers are absolutely immune from libel liability. You should sue the speaker and not the entity that hosts it. All right, but that was a judgment made by Congress. That was a judgment made by Congress uh, and Congress is entitled to it. It wants to provide the Large Language Model Immunity Act of 2023. Uh, it can do that, but it's not something the courts generally just make up uh, on their own by and large. And by the way, also remember in Section 230, at least you could say, well, 
You can't sue the service provider because you really should be suing the actual person who created this libel. Now, to be sure, that person may be hard to find, may not have any money, but at least in theory, that is available. If we provide immunity to the AI companies, there's nobody to sue because, again, it's not like they're passing along somebody else's information. They're the ones creating uh, the libelous information. Yeah, so I, I think again the the two third example is so interesting, and you know, as you know, we've talked about this uh, in other contexts. There's a a, a, a vigorous debate, shall we say, about what it was that Congress thought it was doing when it passed two thirty, and whether the judicial interpretations that read two thirty quite expansively were were accurate. And what what I think is sort of maybe interesting, and I, I think does ultimately support your point, is you know, even if you think that that two thirty was meant to be quite a bit narrower than the judges in you know 1997 and onwards interpret it the it does seem that the sort of cultural and sociological context that we are in in 2023 is is quite different and one would not expect judges to have the same sort of very optimistic view of what a uh, untrammeled LLM regime would bring to society that perhaps they thought about the internet in 1997, given given what's going on. So I, I, I do take your point, and I am broadly convinced by your at least descriptive analysis that you know, as the law progresses in this space, you know, we shouldn't expect courts to bend over backwards, whether you know, through 230 or through First Amendment right. arguments to, to protect LLMs. Right. And remember, at the Supreme Court right now, the debate, it hasn't really fully gelled into a specific case in which this issue would be decided, but a debate among justices in separate opinions uh, has been about whether to cut back on libel law protection, off, uh, protection against libel law offered by New York Times v. Sullivan, whether to limit First Amendment protection for publishers in that kind of situation, not completely eliminated perhaps, but say maybe public figures shouldn't uh, have their their reputational rights uh, uh, impaired the same way. So maybe apply New York Times v. Sullivan standard only to lawsuits by public officials, or maybe require showing of negligence uh, uh, that that's sufficient rather than knowing a reckless falsehood. That's the debate. I'm not seeing anybody on the court saying, oh, no, 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 no. We should provide even broader protection against libel uh, uh, lawsuits. We should, we should provide protection even even when it's the speech is negligent and it's about a private figure or knowingly or recklessly false about a public figure. It doesn't seem likely to me, of course, who knows, but it doesn't seem likely to me that the justices or likely lower court judges are going to be embracing uh, at this point uh, unprecedentedly broad readings of First Amendment law, readings that go beyond even the broad readings in cases like New York Times v. Sullivan, at least when it comes to libel. So we focus on, on courts for most of this discussion, and that's appropriate given that that's where most of sort of defamation law lives. Um, but there are two other branches of government, and we've mentioned in passing that Congress could change libel laws that apply to LLMs and provide more protection or less protection. And then, of course, we could have uh, regulatory agencies, as you mentioned, I think somewhat dismissively, and I, I do want to kind of push push a little bit on that, create some substantive standards that might displace or or, uh, or supplement what, what courts do. And I'm, I'm sort of curious whether you think that that's sort of likely, whether it could be effective, and if so, what they should do. And, and in particular, with respect to the idea of regulation, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm with you that that has its disadvantages, but it does seem to be how we've chosen to deal with, you know, high risk, high reward technologies, right? I mean, you know, if, if, a, uh, if, if, if an airplane crashes, you can sue the airline, but 
the primary reason airplanes are safe is I'm not sure that I think it's because the FAA is pretty robust in right. uh, not allowing unsafe airplanes to fly. So why not have a department of, of AI? I'm not in principle against having regulatory agencies deal with that. It may be, I mean, that they in obviously have, famously have various problems. It's just that maybe they're the least bad of all the alternatives. Or maybe what we need is we need a mix of regulatory regimes. We need some categorical rules set forth by statute, but maybe relatively few because it's hard to define things by statute precisely enough. Uh, it's better to have an expert agency that can move a little bit more quickly than a legislature. Uh, and also on top of that, have uh, the possibility of tort liability, which is present with regard to air crashes. It's present with regard to uh, car crashes, pharmaceuticals, and other things that are still regulated. The thing is, there is no such agency. There can't be such an agency without congressional action. At least there can't be a federal agency without congressional action. So, you know, it may be that even in a sharply split Congress, there could be bipartisan support for this. I just don't see really any evidence of it happening so far. So at this point, I think that's just quite hypothetical. Uh, now, lawsuits are also hypothetical. None, to my knowledge, have been filed. But at least the courts are there currently sitting, applying currently existing law to do this. Also, my understanding is that even when they're created, expert agencies tend to move relatively slowly. There are advantages to, to doing that. Maybe they also move faster than litigation does, at least. Again, it's all a matter of compared to what. But they do move comparatively slowly. And as you point out, this is an area which is moving very, very quickly. So another question might be, what about state agencies? Now, we don't think of states uh, as proper bodies to regulate technology that's provided through the internet. And there are actually arguments that they're constitutionally precluded by the dormant commerce clause from doing that. The, you, you are, of course, sitting in California, which, uh, it's, which would be news to California that they're not of the appropriate right. uh, internet regulators. So Jack Goldsmith and I uh, have a forthcoming article in the Texas Law Review about the Dormant Commerce Clause and how it actually probably does leave some room for regulation with respect. To, we've fo focused mostly on social media platforms as our key examples, but, but we drew on other, other instances of that. So, for example, libel law is state law. It varies from state to state. And in principle, you can object that uh, uh, allowing libel lawsuits over internet content means some website might potentially be sued under 50 different state libel laws, which are not completely different, but are subtly different in some situations. Yet that's the way our legal system works. So maybe if either California is the place where OpenAI, let's say, is located, or other states say, you know, we are going to create some new statutory causes of action, or even regulatory bodies that can set forth these things, maybe that have some constitutional power to do that. I do worry, though. I mean, I do think states have the power in some respects to impose regulations on the internet. I, I do think that maybe as a policy matter, something that, that would cause extra problems. Uh, be, precisely because even if it's permissible to say OpenAI and other companies that provide information through the internet and through telecommunications more broadly, it's permissible as a constitutional matter to have them be subject to 50 state regimes. I'm not sure it's a great idea. So I want to use my last question to go kind of a little meta. And it occurs to me, and this is to take Nothing Anything you from, can do, I can do meta. Yeah, very nice. And this is to take to take nothing from the sort of importance and, and originality of, of this line of research. But the argument that you're making is fundamentally fairly straightforward. It's quite intuitive. 
Um, and uh, certainly if you hadn't made it, I'm sure some litigant would have made it shortly thereafter. And the reason I say this is because you have, you know, the biggest, most powerful tech companies with the smartest people and infinite resources, um, and they just rolled this out, right, publicly without it occurring to them that there was this ticking time bomb of defamation. And fine, you can say, well, OpenAI is kind of a startup, but Microsoft's not a startup, and they jammed it into Bing the moment they could, and Google is going to jam it in and 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 uh, to, to their suites of, of software. Now you have this kind of AI arms race. And so my... What I wonder is, you know, given that they did this either without realizing a fairly straightforward source of litigation risk for them or just not caring, d- does that give you pause as to whether or not the 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 kind of ecosystem that we have settled on for developing AI, which is a kind of, uh, you know, market-driven companies are going to do this for profit motive and you know, that's going to ultimately determine how AI is developed. Does, does that give you pause? Because it certainly gives makes me a little worried that if they didn't even do this level of homework, man, this is, may not be the best way of to build out a right. world historical technology. Well, you know, this is, uh, it gives me a pause in many different ways. So one thing which you hinted at is, what if they know something I don't? What if they've actually had people for longer than I've been studying this, studying this, and they have dispositive precedents that they're quite sure judges will will uh, go with or maybe that's okay volok's arguments you know we have this clear counter argument and uh, even if in the absence of precedent you know he's just missing this important fact and we just don't want to tell him because we either we don't not paying attention to him or we'd rather he embarrass himself by publishing this article <laughs> uh, without noticing that I worry about that because I may well be wrong I may well be wrong and I should say also I've been working on this literally for about a month because that's about a month ago is when I noticed that this was a problem. There's good reason to to, to not publish articles you've been working on only for a month. In this case, I plan on publishing it about a month from now because I figure I'll get enough feedback and it's just really important given the speed of all these things to, to get it out there. But I may very well be wrong. There's no doubt that that is certainly possible. Another possibility is they say, you know, okay, sure, there's some risk. And what will happen is maybe we'll get sued. And if we get sued, you know, so we'll have to pay out maybe some hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, libel verdicts aren't, sometimes they're huge, but often they're not. Maybe even millions of dollars. That's okay. We have billions of dollars. And it's true. A lot of people could sue us, but, you know, there are all sorts of reasons they don't want to sue. They might not want to sue. So maybe they've, maybe they've figured it out. And maybe on balance, they say it's a worthwhile risk. And, you know, that that might be a reasonable decision, right? You know, car manufacturers created cars. I think on balance, cars are a great invention. Airplanes are a great invention. You know, a lot of them were operating on a shoestring, but ones that actually had a lot of money probably were aware that there would be some possible risk. To be sure, the products liability law of the time was was uh, more pro manufacturer than now, but still on balance, you could, uh, th- they might have been worried of what happens if one of our airplanes or not even a manufacturer, but people running airlines, what if one of our airlines crashes and kills someone on the ground? Well, we may have to pay, but you know, that's the cost of doing business. Look at how much money we could make. So maybe they just sort of figure that they're going to make so much money by providing very useful stuff. I don't want to I'm not using make so much money as a pejorative. If they make a lot of money, it's because they're providing a service that's tremendously useful that, you know, this will be a cost of doing business. Or another possibility is they may figure this is going to be such a 
tremendously important technology that if we just get it into enough people's hands, enough businesses' hands, uh, that at that point, Congress is going to say, look, if indeed defamation lawsuits are potentially a, a industry killer, we can't afford to do that, to allow that. So we are going to provide some sort of immunity. And, you know, that's a possible way of trying to run a business model. I think uh, in some similar respects, various tech companies have been have been described as sort of doing something similar. They're trying to kind of establish themselves. Their product is sort of a fait accompli. It's there. And to the extent that there needs to be some relaxation of regulation, that'll happen, or relaxation of tort liability, that'll happen through the legislative process uh, because people will be so become, become so reliant on it. You know, maybe that's a legit way of doing things. Or again, maybe I'm just wrong. Well, there's clearly a lot of uncertainty here, but I, I think what is... What you have established, I think, beyond doubt, is that there will be plenty of litigants who are upset, plenty will sue, we're going to have plenty of cases to chew over over the next couple of years, and we'll definitely have you back as we try to figure out, um, just in this small corner of the legal landscape, how to deal with LLMs. So thank you so much, uh, Eugene, and I encourage everyone to, to read the, the draft paper. It is uh, quite eye-opening, and we'll make sure to link to it in the show notes. Thanks for coming. Thanks very much for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.